Hello, I'm your host, Ray Dogum, and welcome to Vibecast. Thank you for joining us as we explore the exciting advancements in technology-enabled collaboration to excel important drug development. Vibebio seeks to find every cure for every community. Join us to learn, imagine, question, and help us identify and develop solutions together. Our guest today is Derek Burnell, founder of Synthase Capital Partners, and previously an executive director at JP Morgan and managing director at Silicon Valley Bank. Derek, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me, right? Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation with you. I'm very interested in learning about your past experience at these banks, as well as mm-hmm. uh, sort of more to learn more about Synthase as well and you know why you started that. Yeah. So maybe we can get started about we can get started with you just introducing yourself a little bit more and sharing your background. Sure, sure. Yeah, Derek Cornell, and as Ray, as you mentioned, I'm a founder and managing director of Synthase Capital. Um, grew up in Vermont, attended the University of Vermont, moved to Southern California 23 years ago, got started in banking at was what was then Union Bank of California, and then uh, in 06, joined Silicon Valley Bank and uh, was there for 12 years doing a kind of a combination of supporting both technology and life science companies. And then in 2017, had the opportunity to join JP Morgan as they were building out their early stage life sciences practice and worked there for four and a half years. And now I'm, I'm off on my own, still active in the life science ecosystem, working with clients, helping them source both debt and equity capital, as well as doing fractional corp debt work for companies as well. So awesome. Happy to dig in anywhere you want. Yeah, I think maybe just defining debt for for life sciences and like what you because there's so many different um, financial instruments, I think people sure. can use or leverage in order to keep their companies afloat. Maybe yeah. just kind of defining venture debt and different. Types of yeah, debt. yeah, it's a uh, it's a good point because there's a lot of different terms mixed around, but essentially venture debt is debt that's typically placed with companies that are venture backed institutional VCs that are still either, you know, pre-revenue, um, which is often the case with life science companies or pre-cash flow positive. So these companies are typically funded by institutional capital providers, VCs predominantly, but they can be corporate VCs as well as financial VCs. And Sometimes boards and management teams look to layer in debt capital on top of an equity capital raise. And there's a number of reasons why a company might want to do that, but oftentimes it's best used as a lower cost of capital insurance policy, if you will, it's kind of a simplistic way to think about it. So um, oftentimes companies are burning money, get to some sort of a milestone could be a clinical milestone, regulatory milestone, and having a little bit of extra liquidity in the form of this debt vehicle can sometimes um, be beneficial. So companies aren't running out of capital ahead of a key value inflection point. Got you. So it's sort of um, supplementary to the invested capital. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. Um, Debt is debt it has to be repaid it's never really good to think of it as a replacement for equity it's really a supplemental source of capital that is uh, a lower cost of capital um and then there's other 
ways to structure credit as well in certain different situations. You might see companies that are late phase three, early commercial, look to get credit to help them kind of front load or finance actually some of the, the startup costs associated with building up a sales team and whatnot. So there's, there's within the venture debt landscape, there's a number of different products that get structured and deployed depending on where companies are in their, in their life cycle. Interesting. Let's take a step back and sort of talk about what got you interested in life sciences financing in the first place? Like why life sciences yeah. over something else? Yeah, I, I think I have to be clear that I, I always view myself as somewhat of an accidental banker. I mean, I studied finance in college and I enjoyed just the rigor of that. Um, got exposed to some accounting as well. When I graduated, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. Um, and a friend of mine worked for a small bank back in Vermont as a credit analyst. And um, when I got out to California, I was looking around for a job similar to that. Figured it would expose me to a lot of different businesses, would leverage my college degree and just give me a platform to kind of learn and go from there. And I kind of just uh, started to enjoy what I was doing at Union Bank at the time. And then, you know, when I moved to Silicon Valley Bank, it really, that environment, that culture at the time, this was in 06, it really clicked for me. I was able to interact with a lot of companies, uh, both in the technology and the life science ecosystem, had access to VCs, C-level executives at a fairly young age relative to what I might have exposed, gotten exposed to at a, at a larger larger bank candidly. So it was just really stimulating. And then, you know, I moved to San Diego, uh, probably 07, 08 timeframe and was working with a number of tech companies. And then an opportunity developed in the San Diego market with an SUV to join their life sciences team. And for, for listeners who maybe aren't aware of San Diego is one of the larger life science ecosystems. And so for me, I'm just thinking of it as from a career perspective, there's probably more personal runway for me here in the life sciences ecosystem versus focusing on tech. And that's played out, I think, pretty well. Um, although the tech ecosystem in San Diego is also pretty vibrant. So, and, uh, I really just started to enjoy working with life science companies. Uh, you know, there's not to get too over my ski tips about this, but you know, there is something fulfilling and rewarding when you're working with companies that are developing tools, technology devices that are, you know, potentially going to have a big impact on people's lives. So that resonated with me. And after working in the ecosystem for a while, I just felt like, yeah, this, this feels right. I have a certain set of skills. I have a network. I liked the bigger mission, if you will, that I can enable through the work that I'm doing um, and the relationships that I have with my clients. And so just kind of fit and uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to do it. This is a great market. Obviously it's a great part of the country to to live in and raise a family and feel blessed to be able to do that. For sure. And I could certainly resonate with the, you know, sort of passion and interest in life sciences and healthcare in general as well. Just having that feeling of being able to work on something or help people work on something that's so impactful to human life, as opposed to maybe helping a company try to figure out a new way to rent a car or something or FinTech. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, look, I, I, everyone has their skills and their calling. I think for me, having worked 
with a number of tech companies that were doing things that were all, you know, albeit interesting, did, didn't have that same uh, kind of emotional connection for me as working with, with early stage and, you know, growth stage life science companies does. So it's hard. I wish I had, you know, maybe studied a little bit more hard science in high school and college, but, you know, I'm doing what I can to keep up with it. But I, I enjoy the, the, the challenge and, uh, again, the work that people are doing um, has the potential to have a big impact, you know, potentially in my life, my children's life, family members, and just broader community. So, yeah, and I'm sure that resonates. Yeah, and, and through that, you know, not having that engineering or life sciences background or biology background, you probably have to leverage a lot of other experts to help you sort of navigate some of those more complex domains at certain points. You know, sometimes when you're working with different management teams, they'll ask you like, you know, do you have a background? And if you don't, they will ratchet their communication down a notch or two. But, you know, candidly, I think by nature, I'm a curious person and I like to be put into situations where I almost don't know things. And I spend a lot of time researching, Googling, YouTubing, whatever, you know, you know, getting into the scientific literature. And I like that. Yeah. So, you know, almost like the more complex it is, the more it gets me excited to dig in and, and it does get complicated at times. But it's also fascinating when you get into some of these stories. And then I have a much greater sense of just the progression of basic science in how today's discoveries, when you start going through the literature, it's like built upon layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of stuff that goes back decades. And again, not, you know, being exposed to it, but not being intimately in that ecosystem. It's like, wow, there's... There's a lot there, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just really cool that you've been able to kind of watch that space grow over time, the whole biotech space in general. Yeah. Just, you know, the, the types of therapies and advancements that we're making today are very different than the ones that they were making in 2005 or 2010. Um, so it yeah. must be really uh, rewarding just in that sense, just having been able to um, follow these companies through the years. Yeah. Well, it's certainly, I mean, I think it's a cliche you know, every moment is the exciting moment, right? But I think what we're seeing a lot of now is a confluence of, you know, the hard sciences with technology and you have this growing tech bio um, ecosystem or, you know, sub-vertical or sub-sector, however you want to describe it. And it's exciting to see some of that stuff finally, you know, I think reach escape velocity. And I think that is one of the trends that's going to impact, uh, certainly drug discovery, uh, clinical trials, um, patient care outside of a clinical setting for decades to come. So I think that's really encouraging. Awesome. So remind me, when did you found Synthase Capital Partners and what mo motivated you to do so? Yeah. So early this year, you know, so separated from JP Morgan last summer when that was fine, I was looking around for kind of my next thing. I enjoyed deploying capital when I was on SUV's platform, 
and I was talking to a couple of different funds and banks and this, the labor market was pretty tight. And so I felt like, okay, I gotta do something. I like the ecosystem. I have a network. I got licensed to do private placements while I was at JP Morgan. And so, you know, I talked to some other folks that have launched their own kind of solo advisory practices and felt like, okay, maybe that's like a good next step for me. Um, it enables me to put myself in a position to earn some money while also activating my network and growing my network candidly. And so I incorporated Synthase Capital Partners in February, uh, worked to get, you know, website stood up and all that stuff. And then I formally launched, uh, on a LinkedIn post back in June and, uh, we're off and running. And so I think for me, it was the next best thing to kind of leverage the skills that I have acquired over the years and position myself for a whole range of opportunities. And that's what's kind of playing out right now. I'm a few months into this, I'm working with a couple clients, um, having some good traction with a few of them, talking to one about potentially taking on a greater role at some point in time. So I just, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. And I think there's really strong alignment between what I, what I want to do and what the clients that I'm working with need. And that feels good. I think they feel good and I think directionally I'm on the right track. No, that, that's sounds really great. And it's always nice when those two things overlap, right? Your interests and what clients want. <laughs> so yeah. It's yeah. Awesome. How do you evaluate the viability and potential of a life science company when you're considering them for either an investment or Alone. Yeah, good question. Um, I'll take the easy one first. So from a credit perspective, you know, venture venture lending or venture debt, it really hinges on a company's ability to raise that first institutional round. So usually what happens is a company would raise a large series seed or series A, and then they would kind of become a candidate for venture debt, either from a, a bank, a boutique bank or a non-bank fund. So the underwriting criteria that a lot of the banks or funds use is one, did they raise, you know, institutional capital? And if so, from whom? And you're trying to, you know, look back at that investor syndicate of that investor and being like, hey, do they have a track record working with life science companies or not? And the other thing you're trying to assess is, you know, the equity that they just raised, how long is that going to last? So you're trying to get a sense of their runway, burn rate, um, when might they need to go back out and raise capital and what milestones or what activities are going to happen in between now and that next raise timeframe to try to get a sense of, you're trying to handicap whether or not a company is going to be able to raise a subsequent round of equity, because at the end of the day, that's really your source of repayment valuation, appreciation, as well as their ability to attract new equity capital. So you, that's in a nutshell, what you're trying to identify from an equity standpoint, you know, I am working with a couple of companies right now on equity capital fundraising projects. And I think a lot of your listeners would obviously agree that the fundraising environment right now is pretty challenging and it's, it's 
there isn't really a, if you just look like this, you're going to get funded. I think there's a lot of disruption right now in the capital markets and even companies with strong pipelines, decent runway, strong management teams that have raised from venture and returned capital are still, you know, having a hard time. So I think, you know, novel science, strong teams, big market potential, um, are always going to be hallmarks that people look at when making equity investments. But I think it's also important for capital seekers to also have an appreciation for where we are in the cycle and how their story fits. Um, and how that their story needs to fit in with the investors business, which is to generate returns for their LPs. For sure. And you mentioned there are certainly different uh, subsectors or subcategories of life sciences. You have biotech, you have medtech, diagnostics, yeah. tech bio, if you want to call it. Uh, do you have sure. one that you really specialize in or prefer to work with? Um, from a credit perspective, I, I have some experience with the different sectors, you know, biopharma, device, med device, or, or diagnostics and med device, I'd say therapeutics tends to be an easier space to deploy debt capital into post and equity financing. Um, partly because the quantum of capital that those companies raise is usually a bit larger. Okay. And there's, they're often valued on the promise of their pipeline. Device is a little challenging because there's a smaller pool of potential buyers. You know, there's only a handful of big device companies. So exit markets are a little bit smaller. And a lot of the buyers want to see device companies get early revenue before. So you could, you could go through a, an approval process, but still have to fund early revenue which can be tricky for companies to do. Um, diagnostics has its own set of challenges around reimbursement and, and, you know, getting paid for utility of some of these tests. And so there's been, you know, some great success stories in diagnostics, but there's also been some, you know, really challenging situations as well. So I'd say therapeutics is where I, tend to focus more of my time, but I'm, I'm kind of agnostic as to any life science subsector, to be honest. Gotcha. Could you share maybe a success story about a company you've provided debt financing to? Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, there's, there's, I, I'm sure there's many. <laughs> there's, there's two that stand out, um, for different reasons. Both of them happen to been based in Utah for some reason, which hmm. is interesting, but, uh, both were clients that I had at Silicon Valley Bank. Um, one was a company called Zarbies, which a lot of you might know. They sold and they continue to sell uh, like honey-based cough syrup, primarily, you know, targeted to children and they've expanded their product lines. And it was kind of like this misfit within SVB where it certainly wasn't a tech company. It wasn't a life science company we ended up managing the relationship in the life sciences group. And I was fortunate enough to 
provide some debt capital for them to help them scale up their business. It was just an interesting one to work with because it was a consumer packaged goods company with, you know, supply chain issues, distribution issues, and then this other wrinkle, which is the seasonality. And so like every year they're like looking at forecasts for the flu and using that to help figure out how to forecast. So just like, again, it was like intellectually stimulating company to work with. And the product literally is sold at, you know, pharmacies, grocery stores. So even today, you know, when my kids get sick, my wife's like, can you go get some Zarbies? And so it just clicks with me just from that reason. The other one is a company called Lineagen, which is a, a, a diagnostics company that focused on um, autism. So they did genetic testing for uh, children had developmental um, disorders uh, in addition to autism. But and so that was a company where we provided working capital line of credit to help them um, manage their receivables, um, get some liquidity from their receivables, as well as what we call like a growth cap facility, growth capital, which was like a term loan to help them kind of scale up operations. And what was interesting is um, the CEO of Lineagen, Dr. Michael Paul, is someone who I'm also working with now on a, a new company that he's uh, involved with called Marabio, which is also in, in the autism space. And so what stands out to me was just the relationship that I built um, with Michael and how that persisted over the years. And then now we're, we're working together again. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that. And that's a good point you bring up. Maybe what, what advice can you share with biotech life science entrepreneurs on the art of navigating like banking relationships? Yeah, well, you know, a lot's changed in the past couple of months for sure. Yeah. Or last year um, as well, like if you just think about I think, SVB and all that, but yeah. I think what's been interesting for me personally is that, you know, when, when I was on the banking platforms I was on, JP Morgan, Silicon Valley Bank, you see the world through bank products. And that, I guess that makes sense, right? Because that's what you're selling and that's where you work and that's all you know. Now that I'm not on a banking platform and I'm in many respects kind of more involved with companies tactically. Um, I have a greater appreciation for all of the other problems, not, not problems, but challenges that they're also trying to tackle as they scale their business. So for me, the advice is I think from a banking perspective, you certainly want to make sure that you're working with a partner that for the most part understands your business and has a team in place that knows what you're trying to do as an entrepreneur, founder, startup company. And I think that's candidly how SEB, Square One, PacWest, Bridge Bank, some of the boutique banks kind of differentiated themselves. Landscape's changing. You know, I was a part of a team at JP Morgan that was trying to bring that type of culture to a larger bank. And I think now you're seeing that accelerate on JP Morgan's platform. You're going to see it expand on MEFG's platform, Steeple, there's like HSBC just launched an innovation bank. I think for me, it's like, you know, the products on balance are 
pretty much commodities, but it's really trying to find people within the banking organization that can understand what you're trying to do and help you get your business a little bit further along than if you were to just shop around for the cheapest whatever, or I think convenience is certainly important, but having a team behind you that gets your, gets your business and has a network that they can bring into certain situations, I think is, is helpful. Yeah. It's certainly not just the amount of money you can get or the interest rate. It's uh, the people. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, I think what you're seeing now is, and I guess it's kind of obvious, but I think given the issues with SVB earlier this year, I think it's going to become the norm to have multiple banking relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and I could see a situation where, you know, a company has a banking relationship with a money center bank. Um, and that's manages certain things. Money center bank. By the, yeah. Like a large, like a JP Morgan, a Wells Fargo, B of A city. Okay. And then maybe a banking relationship with a boutique bank, like an SVB or a bridge bank, or even some of the FinTechs that are coming up, whether it's Brex or Mercury. Um, I like some of the things that the fintechs are doing as it relates to making it easy for founders and executives to actually take care of the stuff they need to take care of from a banking perspective. Gotcha. So thinking about the future of banking, um, we talked about this in our pre-call. What, what is yeah. banking 5.0? Yeah. I don't know if it's 5.0 or what, but I, so part, part of my vision for synthase is multi-pronged, but one of the things I was kind of wrestling with when I was even at SVB, more so at JP Morgan was, I just didn't feel that the organizations were doing enough to really accelerate innovation. Mm -hmm and leverage their networks to bend the cost curves down. Um, just saw a lot of companies kind of struggling with similar things. Some of it was adjacent to moving money. Some of it was not. And so for me, I think the technology exists now for there to emerge what I kind of call like hyper verticalized banking institutions. What do you mean? So you could see a, a FinTech company that is purpose built to accelerate innovation for therapeutic life science companies. Okay. Thank you very much. And the, the, the technology stack incorporates lab ops, mm. all these other software solutions that are being used by development stage companies and then tucked in underneath that platform is an embedded banking relationship with a jp morgan or a b of a or a wells fargo right and so you get kind of the best of both worlds where you get technology forward fintech partner that's super up the curve on your ecosystem with all the you know, safety, soundness, product capabilities of a large bank. 
I think that's, I think that's the future. Gotcha. And, you know, I imagine most of these um, companies are leveraging their CEO or founder, or maybe their chief financial officer to form those relationships with the banks and negotiate and talk through these deals. Um, Do you also recommend that these startups have funding advisors on their side to help them? Yeah, life science is a bit, well, I think startups actually are, are unique in that a lot of startups work with fractional advisors. You know, a lot of the life science companies that I work with have contract relationships with advisors that are focused on, you know, talks or preclinical development or assay development or, or whatnot, fractional CFOs, bookkeepers. Many of them are trying to keep their overhead lean and they don't quite have enough transactional volume to justify full-time CFO until they raise, you know, series A or series B. From a funding advisor perspective, what's interesting, this is what I've kind of learned since I've started is a lot of the credit investors, so banks, non-bank funds, there's a universe of advisors that work to place debt capital and the banks and the non-bank funds are kind of used to working with those advisors. When you get into equity capital projects, I think it's challenging for a lot of VCs to gain a lot of comfort in the management team if they're working with a, a boutique bank or a advisor to help them raise private capital. I've heard from, I've discussed this with a couple of VCs, not, you know, a large sample, but I think the feedback is they want to be able to see the founding teams identify, pursue, get introductions, you know, hustle or navigate the fundraising maze, because that to them is, you know, it's kind of a sign that they have, you know, whatever you want to call it, the skills, the ambition to, to kind of raise the money. Capital raising is a hugely important part of fundraise or of starting these companies, right? And, and if you can't do it, um, you're going to have trouble. Now, I, I kind of have mixed feelings on that. Um, I think there's always room for people to lean in and provide support either through you know, helping a first-time founder, an academic founder, working on their deck, working on the positioning, working on building out a targeted list of investors, trying to do what you can to position them for warm intros. Um, but I think, you know, the the responsibility still primarily rely, you know, lies on 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 the the foot of the the founders to really manage that process. I think folks like myself can augment that, but there's a little bit of a fine line because I think some of the investors are candidly are turned off by it. So hmm. gotta be thoughtful about that. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And it's hard to raise money as a founder, especially now. Uh, it always was, right? And I think the time that they have to spend refining their pitch, their story, their decks, traveling, you know, yeah. having these conversations, um, it sort of is a grind. And 
I think it's safe to yeah. say that many of them feel like it could feel like a waste of time sometimes. But one thing I've learned is every time they do make that pitch, they are learning something about themselves, the company, uh, and then the questions that they get. So it's not all a waste of time. It's just a practice. It's part of the process in a way. Yeah. You know, so much. Yeah, I agree. I money, think, but it's not, it doesn't work that way. I think you know? it's, I think for me, what we're, we're kind of landed on this is I think candidly there's start startups and fundraising and success around fundraising gets hyped up quite a bit. Right. And you, you usually just read about the companies that got funded and you don't want you know, when you look at pitch book, it's like, they're telling you all these things, but they're not telling you the other side of the story, which is how many people are actively out in the market today trying to raise capital. And what I don't have a sense of is how much people appreciate just how competitive it is. And, and particularly for first time founders or first time teams, they're competing on many different fronts, right? They're, they're positioning their idea against the whole sea of other ideas, but they're also positioning themselves against other founding teams that have a track record and have a network because they've raised capital before and they've returned capital before. And if you're an investor and your primary job is to generate returns for your LPs, that's your business. It's really hard to take a pitch from a first time team. Who's trying to create the future with the technology, but they're also, it's the first time that they're trying to do it. Right. And so, um, I have a lot of empathy for entrepreneurs that are launching into this endeavor, but I would just caution them to think about the equity capital supply chain, how money flows from limited partners to general partners, really study like VC math and portfolio math and, and try to align your story in such a way that your 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 opportunity aligns with the fund and if you can articulate that succinctly i think you'll have some success in at least getting the attention of a prospective investor that makes sense you should be you know able to cater to the specific investment firm that you're you're going after and uh, adjust and change some of the details about what you're saying so that it's uh, yeah, but that's what makes it time. I mean, that's, that's, what's time consuming, right? It's like, if any, you know, I think we've all, you know, applied for jobs and you're like, oh, I got to tweak my cover letter for this thing. And it's like, multiply that by, you know, the number of investors that are, you know, there's something like, I don't know, 500 plus life science investors. There's a whole range of them, whether they're active or not, but it's daunting. Right. And that's where I feel like that's where I can help in winnowing down that list for companies hmm. running through um, the resources that I have just trying to get a targeted list and then once you have that targeted list like okay like what do we think is going to resonate with this particular investor right what's the story that we want to put in front of these teams and how do we get in front of them gotcha are there some red flags that investors should be cautious about when diligencing a potential company or investment yeah yeah, I mean, there's many, I, I'm not in a position where I'm actually deploying capital. That's something that I would like to be doing in the next, you know, 24 to 36 months. But from 
the conversations that I've had with, with investors, I think it's important for, and this is particularly true for science companies because you know, you read all about product market fit and so much of what's in the media is really focused on like technology companies, but you know, life science companies, it's really hard to figure out product market fit when you're preclinical and, and you might not have an approved product for eight years, if ever. Right. So I think it's important for founding teams to really think about their unique science as a business and really be able to articulate the business value proposition and then de-risk back, you know, going from patient all the way to today, de-risking how you get from here to there, being able to do that. And that's, that's not something that's, I think when you come out of say an academic lab or, 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 you know, maybe you're in pharma, but you're on the science side of pharma, I mean, you've got to put on like your business hat. And I think that's challenging and where conversations that I've had with some, you know, successful multi-exit founders was like, you know, they, they often see first time founders kind of struggle with, with articulating how their science and their IP is, could be a viable business. Yeah. And then the other thing, and this was, it's like super intuitive, but an investor that I connected with earlier this year told me this, he's like, you know, he gets an, e- he gets an email from a company from, let's say it's from Ray. Like he goes and looks up Ray on LinkedIn and if Ray's background on LinkedIn doesn't match the summary of the business, it's like, it's an immediate pass. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's a logical filter, right? Again, it gets back to the competitiveness and the scarcity of capital. Right. There are, there, there are, if you think about it from a allocating capital and taking a bet, it's like, why would I bet on Ray? Who's a bright guy and maybe his idea is great, but Ray's never done this. Not saying you can't raise money, but you're not going to raise money from that investor. Just the level of confidence isn't, is there, isn't there. Yeah. I think, I think it's, I think it's a lot of things, but I just, it was, it was kind of like a, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it even made sense because I was talking to him about something that I wanted to do for him. And he's like, well, I would never, I would never think to hire you to do that because you've never done that. And even though I might say like, that's what I want to do, or I have aspirations to do, or I can do it. He's like, but you've never done it. So I wouldn't put any weighting on your ability to do that. Well, it's about minimizing risk, right? And it makes total. Right. To do that. And I think that's what, that's what I think is, I think there's this notion that venture capital is exists to fund moonshots and ideas. And, and I'm not saying there's not a part of it that, that doesn't do that, but when you really get, when you really boil it down, it's like the funds are selling a product to limited partners and that product is capital return on capital. Mm -hmm. And the, the, if you can find some of these in the public domain, find how GPs are pitching to LPs. Look at how much they talk about financial metrics and portfolio construction and history versus we funded Ray's awesome life science company. That's going to cure. They don't talk about that. Interesting. They talk about the math. And so I think it's just something that is missing in the arc of education 
for founders. Do you think that mentality is changing at all? Like, are you seeing alternative models for VCs or maybe like these boutique companies that are more? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's cyclical, right? I think right now you're getting a lot of, there's a lot of angst. Yeah, I feel that. Right. We're, we're, we're in a really interesting period of time here. I think LPs are questioning their allocations. GPs are, you know, rationing their portfolios. Portfolio companies are, you know, unfortunately going to have to shut down or merge or, and so I think the, you know, I, I think like any crisis, there's things that come out of it where people start to question like what, you know, why, why do we do this? Like what, why does tiger global raise all this money and blow it out in a really short period of time? And I don't know if they're going to get any of it back. Like, it's just, does that make sense? Um, Think about some of the technology that's in place right now. Like look at the function of just what VCs were doing in terms of taking a pool of money and allocating it. Um, does AI, not to you know ride that hype train any further than it needs to go, but do you know does technology enabled allocation influence things for the better? Meaning lower fees less bias in decision-making. I think that's a big problem. In what way uh, bias? Oh, well, like, like, you know, bias around first time founders, biased around founders from diverse backgrounds. Um, it, it's, it, it goes both ways, right? It's LPs investing in emerging managers who maybe have a different track record or a different network. Um, I just think like the 08, 09 kind of crisis was kind of all this stuff going on with bigger issues around global finance. This issue I think is really just an overcooked capital market liquidity issue. A lot of money was deployed into companies. My sense is that there's going to be a reconsideration that gets done throughout the whole supply chain. And questioning, like, is this really the best way to generate? If I have an endowment or a pension fund, are there alternative ways to generate the levels of return that I need? Um, or is it, you know, and I, start, I think you're starting to see, you know, some of those conversations. Like I said, at price, every crisis always brings forth some, like, hey, you know, why are we doing it this way? This seems kind of silly, like we lost a bunch of money or um, we were we were told we would get this type of return and we didn't. And then plus you get the macro environments changed too, right? With interest rates where they're at. Um, I think you're going to see a rotation out of some of these alternative asset classes because there's, there's better, maybe arguably safer places to put your money to generate the returns that you need. So I think, yeah, we're, we're still in the middle of a, an unwind. It's going to take some time to figure this out, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's some technology solutions or a remapping of the ecosystem that comes out of this. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, even now you can probably make more money putting your cash into a CD uh, in a bank in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think there's still, I mean, I think, you know, I think there's still going to be a case for alternative assets. What do you think about like, like the blockchain industry and crypto and that alternative class of assets? 
you know, I haven't spent a whole lot of time, honestly, I'll parrot what everyone else says. I think, you know, there's probably some technical interest in the blockchain itself, but in terms of crypto, like I, I, I can't really say I understand the potential of that. Um, yeah. I got, I'm kind of a simple person in a way where it's like most of the stuff that I'm doing seems to work. Okay. I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not clamoring for a decentralized banking platform. You know, I'm just, I don't know, but I, I think in some respects it's back to what I mentioned earlier, right? Like in a way it's kind of like people at the frontier pursuing technical challenges. And one of the things that I've observed is that, and I think history plays this out is there might be a use case for something that was born out of a crypto speculative currency that gets repurposed a decade from now to do something maybe arguably better than speculating. I don't know. So I don't either. There, there could be hope for something like that. Yeah. And only time could tell, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Derek, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I do appreciate yeah, your time. Enjoyed it. Thanks for answering my questions. Uh, sure. and looking forward to following Synthase on its journey as well. So let us know how we can help there. And for the folks listening, please do like, subscribe, share this. Uh, and yeah, anything else you want to leave the audience with before we end here? No, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate your time. It's a great opportunity to share some of my views and welcoming feedback from any of your listeners. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and yeah, I think you're going to include my details on the on the podcast summary. So again, appreciate it. Sounds Take care. We'll be sure to include those.